The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. It's good to be back with you. Last week I took my children north, provided my wife a weekend at home without seven others, and the Lord used it to encourage her, and I praise God for that. It's a delight to be with you. Isaiah chapter 11 is where we're going today. Please open your Bibles. I wanted to uh, draw attention. I was encouraged to do this. Um, Just to note that all these teachings are located on my website, which has taken a new creation since December. What was deroshi-meyer.org is now jasonderoshi.com. And I still love Pastor Jason, but <laughs> he hadn't been able to contribute for three years. And I just said, do you still want to do this? And he, he thought it would free him to not, I mean, it's been out of his mind, and he thought it was best to just have it solo. So jasonderoshi.com, and you can find our Sunday school lessons week by week, all located there along with uh, a lot of the other stuff that I have written and done. So if that'll serve you. This is our fourth week in this great passage and Lord willing, we will move ahead next week. Chapter 11, verse 1 opens up, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse is David's son. Sorry, David's father. (laughs) Jesse is David's father. And to David, God had promised that he would have a son on the throne forever. When Isaiah comes, David's already been dead for 250 years. This Jesse, this this shoot from the stump of Jesse, this, this new garden stalk that will fill the earth with a brand new Eden is none other than Christ Himself. We learn in verse 10, in that day, in that day when peace is established and it will reach across national boundaries, in that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of Him, shall the nations inquire. And His resting place shall be glorious. I noted that Paul in Romans 15.12 cites that text right there and says, it's being fulfilled today. With Jesus' rising from the grave, all authority in heaven and on earth being His, calling people to go and make disciples of the nations, the nations are gathering to Christ, who right now is already on the throne. He is in Jerusalem, and our identity is with Him in God. Hebrews chapter 12 says, already, Christians have already come to the heavenly Jerusalem. Jerusalem has been elevated over all things, and the nations are gathering to the presence of God in Christ, who is the temple. And as we come to Him, we become the temple. The presence of God dwells in us, and it has already gone global. It's gone from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and now all the way up here to Minneapolis. Indeed, all the way to Kodiak, Alaska. 
The temple has gone global. The presence of God is all over and people can encounter the resurrected presence of Jesus anywhere on the globe because there's Christians everywhere. Last time we were together, we looked at verse 11. In that same day, when the Christ is exalted and the nations look to Him and gather to Him, in that very day, the Lord will extend His hand a second time to recover the remnant that remains of His people from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamat, and from the coastlands of the sea. Seven different locations, and the coastlands reaches the borders. It just stretches it out. The ministry that God will do in the day of the Messiah will be a global ministry. And it says in verse 10, notice verse 10, it says peoples, whereas verse 11 says people. So this is Isaiah's way, I think, of distinguishing the Gentile nations from ethnic Israelites. And God's going to be doing a work among both of them in the days of the Messiah. So now we come to verse 12. So this section here, the Lord is the one who saves His people and they celebrate. Now what I've already established, if you can remember the previous three weeks, and even beyond all the way to the beginning of last semester, is that Isaiah's vision of the servant Savior is something that's already being realized today. For him it was hope. For us, it's experience. There are elements that are still to come. We haven't fully experienced the culmination There's still evil, but within the people of God, which is transnational, there's peace. So that we can interact with a northern Michigander and a Nairobi Kenyan, and we can be brothers and have more in common in Christ than I do with most of my neighbors. We can have a deep bond that will stretch with me and Luba even as she goes all the way to California. And this common ground in Christ, though we be separated for a while, it will not last forever. There's this unity, this bond of peace that's envisioned in this book. And I've said it's already happening. Now, in verse 11, when it says, He'll recover His people, singular, a second time, do you remember what we argued it was about? What does He mean that He'll recover them a second time? The first time was the exodus. The first was the initial exodus. But now it's a second exodus, a new exodus that's been anticipated, I said, all the way from Exodus 15. When it treated all the nations as if they were already trembling, even though all, they, all that Israel had done was cross the water, they're on dry ground, they're just on the other bank and they're celebrating 
I will sing unto the Lord, for he is triumphed gloriously, the horse and the rider thrown into the sea. And Miriam's there with the tambourines, and all the ladies are dancing. And then they say, already the Philistines are trembling. The Edomites are shaking in their boots. And yet they, the word has already gone out. It's as if it's already happened. The victory over all the enemies that were to come, it's as if it's already happened. Why? Because God had already defeated the greatest enemy, and if he's given us that, how will he not also with that greatest enemy give us everything else? Does that sound familiar? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If he's done the great, defeated the greatest enemy on our behalf, then we can be confident that he is for us and that he will also clean up all the rest. So this picture of the Exodus became a, a type of a greater antitype, a picture that anticipated fulfillment, a shadow that pointed to a greater reality. So, Jesus, meeting with Moses and Elijah at his transfiguration, actually says, actually it's not Jesus, it's they, talking to him, they appeared in glory and spoke of Jesus's ESV simply says departure, and then there's a footnote that sends us down to the bottom of the page, and it says, this is the word exodus. And I think it's pulling straight from the Old Testament context. The day will come, says Jeremiah in chapter 16, when they will no longer say, the Lord who brought us out of Egypt. But no, they will say, the Lord who brought us out of the north country, who overcome greater enemies, far vast... A new exodus, and Jesus is leading it from Jerusalem. Why? Because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. What was just a picture in the Old Testament and provided the means for Israel to go out and brought judgment on all those who didn't have the lamb, Jesus becomes the greater exodus mover. And as we follow him, Trusting in Him, the exodus that He brings in Jerusalem becomes our exodus. So we begin in verse 12. And what we have here is the process of the second exodus is set forth in the rest of this chapter. And the way that the process is set up is God's the big mover and he's going to do two main actions and each of those actions has a result. So it's going to go action, result, action, result and God's up front as the one who's bringing it about and then the result is listed. So let's look at it. We begin with action one. The Lord moves to gather a remnant. Look what it says. He will raise a signal. Wait, pause. Let me pray. <laughs> Father, I ask that as we enter into your book, that you would, by your kindness, open it up to us and move us to celebrate in our souls, like this text is going to say, the people who experience this exodus will celebrate. 
Move us there. Move us to the point of praise. May this not be abstract or distant, ancient words. Make it a contemporary word for us. That's what I'm asking. Just as you've met me in my preparation and moved me to stand in awe of you, to worship you as the one who, though you were angry with us, came and pushed aside the anger that you might comfort us. That kind of a God, while we were still sinners, Christ dying for us, reconciling us with you, and making it so that we need not fear your wrath. Move us to praise. Move us to joy. Grant us a contentment in our soul that celebrates the servant Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. He, namely the Lord, who has extended his hand a second time, this Lord will raise a signal for the nations. Will assemble the banished of Israel, gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. God's action. Now note right off the bat, the link between verse 12 and verse 10. Even though the focus here from verse 11 beyond is on ethnic Israel, the people, he notes that this God will raise a signal for the nations. And verse 10 said, In that day the root of Jesse, who we've identified as the Christ, will stand as a signal for the peoples, the nations. So if in verse 12, God will raise up that signal, then God is the primary mover And as he's saving ethnic Israelites at the end of the age, which is already happening, he will at that same time be elevating a signal saying, this isn't just for ethnic Israelites. It was to the Jew first, but it's also for the Greek. And that signal being lifted high above all things is the Christ. So that when... The Jews see the Christ, and the Gentiles see the Christ. They say, he's doing something for me. God loved the world that he gave his only son. It's a, it's a global reality. So even as, as right now Isaiah is going to focus on, I believe, ethnic Israelite salvation, he will not let us forget that right there alongside of them, is this Gentile inclusion. The signal that's being lifted up is the Christ, and it's for the nations. And in that day, when the nations see the Christ, in that same day, the division that once existed between Israel in the north and Judah in the south, it's it's going to be overcome. He'll assemble the banished of Israel. He'll gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. So, wherever they are, he will find them. This word dispersed is a word that shows up often with respect to the exile of Israel. They're dispersed. It's also the word that shows up in Genesis chapter 11, verse 9, at the Tower of Babel. And the prophets use this one word 
to talk about the reversal of both exoduses, as it were. Or, the, sorry, the reversal of both exiles. When God cast, scattered all the nations throughout the world, and when he scattered the Jewish people all throughout the world. And the end times exodus is a reversal of both. But the focus here is on the reversal of the Israelite uh, exile. They were dispersed, now they're coming back. Now when God moves this way, when he raises and assembles and gathers, the result is found in verses 13 and 14. There's going to be a unity, and then I say an exaltation of Judah as servant leader. Look at verse 13 with me. This is the first step of the result. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart. Those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. Now, Ephraim is the largest main tribe in the north. Judah is the dominant tribe in the south. Judah houses Jerusalem. Why would Ephraim have been jealous of Judah in the south? And why would Judah have been harassing Israel in the north? What exactly is going on there? Any thoughts? There's a split. Ephraim is in the northern kingdom. Judah is in the southern kingdom. Judah has the temple. What else does Judah have? The Davidic kingdom promises. The Christ will come from Judah. The lion of the tribe of Judah. He's a Judean in the line of David. So, if you happen to be born an Ephraimite, or a Manassite, or a Zebulonite, could you see why there could be jealousy? And can you see how Big Brother with sin in his heart, might remind you of it once in a while. But this isn't how it was supposed to be. Remember this text. This is the vision in in the Pentateuch, in Moses' book, of how the king, who ultimately would be planted in the land, in Judah... The king was never to replace the Lord. He was only to represent the Lord. And none of the kings of Judah start with Saul, David, Solomon. And then the split, the 20 kings in Israel in the north, the 20 kings of the divided kingdom of Judah in the south, none of them lined up perfectly with this vision. But notice what the vision says. When he sits, that is the king, sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law. It's to be approved by the Levitical priests, not twisted, not tainted. What God has said, it's supposed to say. It shall be with him, and he shall read it. How many books do you have with you that you don't read? The word was not to be one of those. The king is to have his own copy of the Bible, which is something we far too quickly take for granted. 
He's supposed to have his own copy and he's supposed to read it every single day. Because Paul says, did you receive the Spirit by works of law or by hearing with faith? It's only an encounter with the Word that creates fear. And it's only when we fear that we follow. A proper fear of God is gained through an encounter with the book. And where there's a proper fear of God, we won't sin. Including jealousy and pride. Because an encounter with God puts us in our place. We recognize, I am needy, and He's the supply. He is great. This is His world. It's not mine. And I am merely a representative in His world. Notice the wording. He'll have a copy of His own law. It shall be with Him. He shall read it all of the days of His life that He may learn to fear the Lord His God by keeping all the words of this law. I would translate this not by keeping, but to keep. That, that keeping is the fruit of fear. From Exodus 20, verse 20, that's how it's always been. Ten commandments, fire, clouds, thick darkness. Don't fear, because I've come that you might fear me so that you will not sin. Don't be terrified in a way that you run from God, but tremble before him so that you will not sin. Not sinning is always the fruit of fear. So I translate it that way, that you may learn to... Fear the Lord his God to keep all the words of this law and these statutes and do them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and then he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. The Bible, an encounter with the Bible is the king's hope to maintain a lasting kingdom. That is, the king doesn't replace the Lord. He himself is a man under authority, and he represents the Lord. And representing the Lord well means that he will not only follow the commands of the Lord, he won't let his heart be lifted up above his brother. Our text says, Judah has had a problem harassing Ephraim. But in the day when the root of Jesse rises up, the true king in Judah, those who identify with him will look like him. This is the king. This is the ultimate portrait of our Christ. He is a man under the word, following the will of God perfectly. And he does not lift his heart up above. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. And those who are with him will be like him. This is creating something new. This is why I say, verse 13 seems to be not only talking about the unity of a new Israel, but the exaltation of Judah as servant leader. All the while throughout the Old Testament, the hope was not simply in an offspring of the woman, or an offspring of Abraham, but an offspring in the line of Judah. 
And in this day, that tribe in particular will be elevated. Ethnic Israelites will be reunified and the character quality of the people will be that of the king. Verses 14, I think it's just verse 14. So harassing and je- jealousy is gone. Look at verse 14. This is a, the, the next result of Yahweh's raising, gathering, and assembling. But they, namely the people of Judah and Ephraim, will swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they will plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. So we've already learned that God in verse 12 will raise a signal for the nations. And that signal in verse 10 is the root of Jesse, who at the beginning of the chapter we're told is a spirit-empowered temple-like figure. Just like the temple rested, uh, the spirit of God rested at the temple, the spirit of God will rest on this king. And he's a king from Judah. And the presence of God can either purify or incinerate. We see that in the, life, uh, the lives of Nadab and Abihu. They encounter the fire and it either sparks holiness in the soul or it burns you up. So, here, led by the root of Jesse, this people, ethnic Israelites, will begin to overcome the enemies that have been known to be enemies throughout the history of the people. And then it says, the Ammonites shall obey them. That's a very interesting statement. That's that's the language of following. I'll listen to you. That there are some from the nations who will actually listen to what this new... Israel is declaring. It doesn't seem to be the language of oppression as much as following. They'll obey. Remember in chapter 2 of our book, it said, the nations in the latter days when the mountain of the house of the Lord is established as the highest of the mountains... All the nations shall flow to it. Many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the house of the Lord, the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways. And I've already linked that vision in chapter 2 with the vision in chapter 11. In the day when the Christ is elevated and the nations say, Oh, that's the where I need to go. Like Like a banner saying this way. This way to life. This way to salvation. God's going to reestablish, reunify a group of ethnic Israelites. I'm not certain, but it seems likely to me that Jesus, as we're going to see when we get to chapter 49, His name is Israel. 
The nation is named Israel. The person is named Israel. And he reconstitutes around himself how many disciples? How many apostles? Twelve. How many tribes? Twelve. He is reorchestrating a unified Israel around himself through whom the blessing of God will reach the nations. And yet there's a high number of Jews that are not part of that group for whom there's even a future jealousy that will be birthed in them toward what God's doing among the Gentiles. That's also part of the biblical storyline. But here what we see is that there's a reconstituted Jewish people in the days of the Messiah, a reconstituted Jewish group around the King Jesus... And there will be Gentiles who link up with them and say, I'm going to follow. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations. I'll raise my signal to the peoples. And they shall bring, listen to this, they, that is the nations, shall bring your sons in their arms. That's ethnic Israelites. Your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings among the Gentile nations shall be your foster fathers, Israel, their queens and your nursing mothers. What does this imply? That at one level, the nations are obeying, listening, following what God's doing among the Jews, but at another level, they're actually the ones, a principal Gentile group, underneath the supremacy of God's work through His Son, they are the ones actually caring for the ethnic Israelites. Because the ethnic Israelites is as if they're small. They've never matured. And they need to be brought up by the Gentiles. Isn't that striking? Kings shall be your foster fathers, ethnic Israelites. Their queens will be your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you. They shall lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Isaiah is envisioning something that I think we we can begin to better understand now that we've seen things begin to be played out in the New Testament. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. That's Isaiah chapter 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, ten men from the nations. That suggests there's a lot more Gentiles who are part of this group than there are Jews. Ten men from the nations will come and grab the hold of a Jew saying, let us go with you for we have heard that God is with you. Is that not what we see in the New Testament as the Gentiles link arms and grab on to Paul's message, Peter's message? We've heard that God is with you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Look at this one. This is Amos first, and then James in the council in Jerusalem in Acts 15 quotes Amos and then draws in some other prophetic voices. But look at what happens. In that day, the same day that we're talking about, I will raise up the booth of David, the tent of David. Judah looks like it's been decimated. I will raise it up. 
so that it's elevated again so that people can live in it. Isaiah 54 is going to say, make the tent bigger because it's now being filled with the nations. In that day, I'll raise up the booth of David that has fallen. I'll repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. That, notice why. I'm going to elevate David and his tent, his house. Who's going to live inside the tent? That they may possess the remnant of Edom. Now, Edom. Notice that the main consonants here are exactly the same. Adam, Edom. Adam is Adam or humanity. Edom. In the Hebrew text, all that you see are the consonants. So all you see is this. Keep that in mind. That they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name. When God repairs the tent of David, that, that group that's identified with David will possess the nations, Edom being representative of them. All the nations who are called by my name for salvation. Now here's James. He recalls the Old Testament prophets. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. Should we send Paul and Barnabas to the nations? Do they need to keep the law? James stands up as a head elder in the church in Jerusalem and says, Brothers, don't you know what Amos said was going to come to pass? What Isaiah anticipated. Don't you remember that though God started things with the Jews, it wouldn't be for the Jews only, but a day would come when a banner would rise and say, it's time. Spread the blessing to the nations. And Abraham's fatherhood would move from a father of a nation, Israel, to a father of a multitude of nations. And it was always anticipated from Genesis 22 forward that that extension of the blessing to the rest of the world would only happen when the single offspring of Abraham would rise. One second, John. After this, I will return and rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind. I think he translates it that way. He's just reading the text. And whether we're supposed to read this as humanity rather than Edom, or whether he just already recognizes that Edom was merely representative of all the nations. Either way, the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and the Gentiles, that's the nations up here, who are called by my name. He's seeing in the day when God lifts up the tent of David, it's going to get bigger. And I think that's what Isaiah is talking about. Brother John. Yeah, it, Edom is also the, um, another name for, those, for Esau's descendants. That's right. Who is the brother of Jacob. Exactly. And so it's almost a, a restoration of his blessing in a sense. I don't know if that's where this thread is supposed to go, but how do you miss that? I, I mean, how could you miss that? I mean, how would... No, no. That, <laughs> I don't know, John. I... I no, that's so, ponder that. So we've got Jacob and Esau, right? 
Before Jacob is renamed Israel, he's a bad guy. He gets a new name, and often when you walk through the prophets, it, it, it at times does seem this way. Sometimes I don't feel it's being explicit. But when you read Jacob, we're supposed to remember rebel. When we read Israel, we're supposed to remember transformed. And God will use both of them together to help us glory in grace. Your old identity overcome by your new identity. But before that happened, Jacob was a rebel who had a brother, and his brother had the birthright. God didn't start out with a world being for Israel. All the while, Israel was supposed to be for the world. In Adam, God had a global purpose. And in Revelation, it's a global purpose that will find its culmination. And so, there might be something there. Like, why not Philistia? Why not Moab? He mentions them other places. Why pick Edom? Because they are representative of the all-humanity global vision. They also seem like the peoples who were just absolutely defiant of God. I mean, Esau's, the Edomites were, were willfully, you know, going different directions. And yet they're being restored. What an interesting parallel to our own lives. But I, it's just a fascinating connection. During the first exodus and wilderness wanderings, it was Edom that wouldn't let Moses go through their land. He refused. The king of Edom said, no, you can't come through. So they had to go way around Edom. But God hadn't promised Edom for Israel. But from that point forward, there's a tension consistent throughout the book against Edom. It may also be noteworthy that Sodom and Gomorrah are part of Edom. That you know, very early, there's a, the, the turf that's designated for Edom has already got a stamp of judgment on it. And yet here we see reversal. And James says, this is hopeful for the Gentiles. Send Paul to them. Because the one in the line of David has come. Let's look at the next verse. Next action. 15, and the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and he will wave his hand over the river, that's the Euphrates, so you've got Egypt in the south, and the river is shorthand throughout all the Old Testament for the river Euphrates in the north, with his scorching breath. So he'll just wave his hand with his scorching breath, and he will change both the Sea of Egypt, which may be an echo of the, Reed, the Red Sea in the south, and the greatest water body in the north that separates geographically, you've got to be able to get across that. So what's he going to do? He's going to, with his, the wave of his hand, which is then equated with the breath of his mouth, strike it into seven channels. So if you've got a giant river and all of a sudden it gets diced up into seven channels, it's a lot easier to cross. Waving his hand with his scorching breath. Does that, does the imagery here, waving his hand and blowing breath over the Sea of Egypt and the, the great river in the north, does that recall anything in the Old Testament? 
Somebody talk clearly. The Exodus. Look at how it's worded. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind. Now that word wind is the exact same word for breath in 1115. And that wind blew all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So we get the word waters here. And Abraham's hand, representative of Yahweh's arm. But it gets more direct here. When you move from the historical narrative to the poetic history, in the very next chapter, at the blast of his nostrils, that's breath, the waters piled up, the flood stood up in a heap, the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea, you blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. This is second exodus. And so he doesn't hesitate to recall the first exodus. But this is greater. This is better. Next result, look at verse 16. There will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. If we've missed second exodus, we just finally saw it once again. There it is. Just like God made a highway for them through the waters of chaos and judgment, He made a way where it didn't seem possible, but God fought for them. So too, God has fought for us. And those waters will not fall until we are clearly homed. Hear the hope in that. He's made a highway. Does that highway language recall any texts for you? Deborah? There's the highway of holiness for no unclean thing shall walk on it. I'm not sure where Let's see. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. Yes, Deborah, all right. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. You don't have to fear getting overcome because no lion will be there. All this, I believe, is symbolic imagery to picture for us. In one breath, he can say, the lion and the lamb will eat together. In the next breath, he can say, no lion will be there. All of it is portraying something for us. There shall not be a ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk on this way of holiness, this highway for our God. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Why? Because they've just tasted and seen that God is good when they thought they were absolutely separated him from Him forever, lost in their sins, lost in their enslavement. God entered in and called them to Himself. They shall obtain gladness and joy. Sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Any other text that highway brings to mind? Prepare the way of the Lord. Where's that from? Pardon? With John the Baptist. But John the Baptist is citing something. 
A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. See, we're just tracking here. It's just, it's good. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. What did he say? Remember, from the womb, the Spirit of God filled him. I've recently prayed that over little babies. God, you did it for him. Could you do it for them? An awakening. I don't know. I don't even understand it. But he had it. An awakening of the Spirit from before there was even a consciousness. So that he had an identification. He comes out and he grows and he's aware that I am here. Not to exalt myself, but to point to one after me. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this he who was spoken, for this is he, Jesus, who, oh, sorry, prophet, John the Baptist, who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. Now what's striking is that in Matthew chapter 3, whose way is John the Baptist preparing? Jesus. And the Lord is used throughout Matthew with respect to the Christ. But Isaiah said, it's Yahweh, prepare to meet, prepare the way of Yahweh. But Jesus is God with us. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He is none other than the very arm of the Lord working the salvation that God promised. So the Septuagint translators, yes, the Septuagint translators had a Hebrew text that only had the consonants in it. And as the more I work through the, the Greek Old Testament text, the more, the more I see a very high anticipation of the Messiah. That the Jews of Jesus' day and beyond were pushing against. Um, so, James is, your point is simply, James wasn't the first one to read it this way. Yes. So you've got Greek translators who are doing the same thing 250 years before James. Thank you. So this, this, is, uh, this is where it all culminates. We ask ourselves, so what? So we find ourselves either among the nations who have seen Christ elevated and we've said he's pointing the way. Or we found ourselves among the united ethnic Israelites, transformed, no longer rebels, now ready to follow God rather than go the opposite way from God, walking with him on the highway that apparently the nations are walking as well all in the same direction, to gather at the new Jerusalem that the writer of Hebrews says we've already come to. 
or which Paul in Galatians chapter 5 says, that Jerusalem from above is our mother. It's birthed us. It's, it's given rise to us. So where do we go? And look with me at chapter 12. This is the end of this unit. And what we may miss is these two sections, verses 1 through 2 and then 3 through 6, shift. The you in verse 1 is singular, whereas the you in verse 3 is plural. And I think this focuses in on a collective response, singular not, this might seem backward, but I think this is what's going on. Singular is not for individuals. Singular is for the community identified in the Christ. The whole community together is singing something in singular. I, I, as in all of us in Him. And then when you hear the plural... It's every individual who's part of that community giving voice to the truth that the community in a collective voice already sang. So let's see it. You will say in that day, you singular, you, the community, will collectively join together and proclaim, I, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength. Literally, Yahweh, Yah, is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. As a group, they're singing. You were angry with me. Back in chapter 5, it made that explicit. 525, therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and he stretched out his hand against them, and he struck them, and the mountains quaked. But what we read in chapter 10 was that that anger would not last forever. 25, for in a very little while my fury will come to an end. My anger will be directed toward your enemy's destruction. And now what we read is, I give thanks to you, for though you were angry with me, your anger was turned away, that you might comfort me. The anger is over sin. And so what we're seeing here is not simply restoration to a land, we're seeing a reconciliation. A oneness with God. He is mine and I am His. And we're together. He's no longer angry at me. There isn't a separation. He's restored us together. In overflowing anger, for a moment I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. God turns away His anger from the repentant. Think about Isaiah in chapter 6. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a nation of unclean lips. What am I to do? For my eyes have seen the Lord in all of His glory. And in such brokenness, the heavenly being took a coal from the altar and touched His lips and cleansed Him. 
He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. By his stripes, we are healed. God was angry and he turned his anger not simply away. He is a just God who must punish sin, but all of his wrath was poured out ultimately onto his son so that he might comfort us. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified, made right by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath to come. No more anger. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The song, God is my salvation. Look at the end of that line. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. That's straight out of Exodus 15 again. That's word for word right out of the song they were singing at the sea. But now transformed. Not just physical deliverance, spiritual deliverance. And it moves people to praise. Let it move you to praise. And may that praise, just overwhelmed by all that Christ has secured for us, let it just quiet all the anxieties that you carry through the day. Remind yourself that the light has dawned and it's only going to get brighter. Don't let the darkness seem too dark. Fight it with truth. Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Let's go to the next. Well, we'll just read it. Joy. Individual response. With joy... You will draw water from the wells of salvation. Isaiah just picks up on this all throughout, but with the joy theme, it's all over the place. But the water from the wells of salvation. Think about Jesus talking to the woman in Samaria. This is about living water. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, woman. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jeremiah chapter 2. You keep looking in cisterns that are cracked, trying to find water that can't satisfy. In this day, a people will be unified from every tongue and tribe and people and nation around the sun, giving praise for a salvation whose waters will never dry up. Just let your soul be satisfied with what is true. God is for you and not against you. And what is dawn now will become noon. 
And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. It's a quote right out of Isaiah 55. And that's where we're living now. You will say in that day, all of you, individually, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the nations. Proclaim it. Tell it. That His name is exalted. Sing praises, each of you, to the Lord, for He has done gloriously. That's straight out of Exodus 15.1. Let this be known in all the earth. And then, strikingly, verse 6 returns to the singular. Shout collectively, as a whole, together. Sing for joy as a unit, O inhabitants of the new Zion. And who's there? Who's in this new Zion? Who's in Jerusalem? It's not just the Jews who have followed their highway. It's the nations who have gathered. They're with them, underneath one king, singing praise to this God, shouting with song, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. I looked and looked for a song to sing, and I I couldn't find one. I didn't know where... I have a very small repertoire on my computer, so I was looking for something. Um, And so I don't have a song to sing, but I wanted to. It was the natural flow of this text. Let your hearts pause in the chaos. I'm preaching to myself right here. Let your hearts pause in the chaos. Let Let the Lord lift you up above the chaos of this now and recognize that his anger has been turned away so that he might comfort us. His anger lasts for a moment, but joy will last for a lifetime. Father, we do praise you. We say thank you together. Let's just say it together. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I don't hear you. Say it together with me. Thank you. Thank you. We praise you, Father, that you have worked such good things for us. May the joy of the Lord be our strength today. May we take comfort knowing that the banner has been lifted. Christ has said, I have removed your sin as far as the east is from the west. I am yours and you are mine. Help us rest finding comfort in the victor who has made a way where there seemed to be no way, who is the way, the truth, and the life for us, who has worked salvation that no one else could work. We praise you that you are for us, that the second exodus is being accomplished. May we bring more with us. For your glory we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies 
through covenant for his glory in Christ.